so last week we started a new series and, uh, that we'll be hitting throughout the year. And the series is called Pursue which is centered around the idea of pursuing after God and its presence. Uh, if you guys weren't here last week or if you weren't able to listen to the uh, sermon, uh, please go to Spotify. We have a podcast, if you guys didn't know. We also have YouTube. Uh, listen to the sermon because we set the theological framework for essentially the rest of the year. And so you'll be missing a huge building block if you don't listen to that. But for our purposes today, I'm going to just give you a brief synopsis of last week's sermon. So the main point I was trying to make was answering the question, what is the desire of God? And the one thing that's clearly marked out throughout the biblical narrative is that God desires to be present with his people. He wants to give us his presence. He wants to dwell with us. And the way that I showed you this was through the theme of the temple as we trace it from Genesis to Revelation. First in the Garden of Eden, I said that he wasn't actually building just a generic garden. He was building a temple for him to dwell in. He wanted to be with Adam and Eve, the very pinnacle of his creative work. Even after they sin and they're exiled, and remember, the most profound effect of sin is what? is separation from the very presence of God. But even in light of that, God, once he invites uh, Israel to be his people, one of his first instructions is to build a tabernacle and a sacrificial system in the temple. And I know when you read Leviticus, you get lost. You're like, what in the world is going on? But if I could summarize it, it's God's way of drawing close to sinful people without destroying them. It created access to his presence in a way so that even in their sin, they're able to have this deep intimacy with the Lord. Now, later on in Ezekiel, the presence of God leaves because of their sin. But when Jesus comes, what is his name? What is the Christmas story? It's Emmanuel, which means God with us. And even after his ascension and resurrection, his presence comes in the upper room and it rests upon the people. And the later New Testament writers say that we have become the temple. No longer is it built with stones, but you and I are the living stones that build up the very temple of God that rests. Now, Lastly, at the end of the story in Revelation, what happens? When the new heavens and the new earth comes down, what is the declaration of God? He says, I will be with my, this is the place from which I will dwell with my people. And it's almost like the entire story, like the 2,000 pages that you've read before, was the trajectory was moving towards this climactic moment where God will be present with his people and we get to enjoy him forever. Okay? So the point I was making is, God, he is after you. He wants you. He wants your heart. And so this idea of pursuing God is not primarily about us trying to catch this elusive being who's hesitant to give us his presence. He's here. All he wants is what? Open hearts, surrendered hearts, hearts that hunger and desire for him. Okay? So maybe you don't have to listen to the sermon next week, but... Uh, but that's the main point that I'm, I'm trying to do. Now, if last week was a theological framework, I'm glad you came today because this is the thesis of the year, the main idea that's going to shape much of our ministry and focus for 2024. And it's going to be about priority as a church. Now, when you think about priorities in life, one thing you realize is that priorities are very difficult to guard and live out of. Uh, One of the fun things uh, in the new year is that we sense that it's an opportunity for a fresh start. And something that we often do is we take time to figure out what our priorities are going to be for the year, what we want to make central. 
What is the one thing that you're going to go after above every other obligation that you have in your life? But you quickly find out by March, all right, or maybe you guys are already at that point, where those priorities that we've set are no longer the compass that guides our year. You start to slowly wander and your priorities shift or they're thrown out completely. And here's why. Uh, so let's say a lot of us, how many of you guys have a resolution to work out this, this year? Some of you guys? Okay, we got okay, I, I know there's more of you, okay? Uh, so let's say you want to get healthy and you want to start working out. And in the beginning of the year, I'm sure you guys are in the gym, right? You want to guard, you're guarding your time that's been slotted for exercise. You're diligent about not filling in that space in your calendar. And you're excited. But what happens? As life gets busy, schoolwork starts to pile up, friends want to hang out, deadlines come, um, you're, you're feeling a bit tired. Your priority for health begins to be drowned out by the demands and needs of life. And do you know what happens? The loudest or the most in-your-face demands and needs become what drives your life rather than the priorities that you've set as most important to you. And this happens all the time. And the one thing you begin to realize as you get older is that priorities are incredibly difficult to keep. To not allow life to happen and um, for it to dictate whether you live for what you prioritize or not. It takes incredible amounts of discipline and accountability and constant reminders to keep our eyes fixed on what's most important for us. And I'm sure you know where this is going. And I bring this up because I think something similar happens within the church. We often fail to live by the priorities that God has set for us. You know, um, years ago, before I was a pastor, I used to go to a lot of Christian conferences and concerts with my friends. And if there was a conference nearby, especially if there was a popular worship band or a speaker that came, I was always there. But I remember this one moment uh, that I had uh, where I had this feeling of being disoriented. I realized upon reflection that after these so-called powerful conferences, it was a bit concerning how people were evaluating and how they would be talking about their experiences, especially when they would say that it was a powerful night. Because the focus of why they loved the conference or the worship night was usually what? How amazing the speaker was or how amazing the band was. And our post-conference discussion would be centered around people. But rarely did I ever hear people talk about God and how they fell more in love with him or how they got to be with him. And I had a moment where I sensed something was off with much of Christianity, including my own. It was almost as if we were going to these conferences for the speaker or the music more so than God himself. And it was clear that our priorities were disordered. They were there to chase entertaining speakers or good worship bands more so than an encounter with God. And the thing is, this isn't limited to conferences. It happens in churches all the time. Okay, let me show you what I mean. One thing that I've seen is that many churches, we operate from a need-response operating system. And what do I mean by that? You know, when you guys come, uh, and people come, uh, I've been part of three other churches, they have a lot of needs. And as churches grow and are in different seasons, needs change when it comes to church structure and various other aspects of ministry. And oftentimes, the priorities of the church are determined or become reordered by these needs, preferences, and opinions of members. And I'm going to say most of it, it's really good, right? We want to be a community that addresses the needs of our people, 
uh, and do whatever we can to bring them to a place of wholeness. But what ends up happening is that the ultimate authority shifts from being God-centered to us-centered. Our needs become central. Healing becomes your ultimate goal. Your own well-being becomes the destination. And the meeting of your needs becomes the priority over everything else. And God becomes a means to an end. And do you know what actually gets neglected? The greatest commandment. To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And we get to a place in our church and our personal relationships where we're satisfied. Or we, we think we're doing well spiritually when our needs are met. And not measured by our love and our desire for God and his presence. I want you to listen up here. Let me ask you a question. Has your Christianity gone beyond your needs? I mean, I want you to think about that for a moment. Has your Christianity gone beyond your needs? Has it gone beyond the fact that God might be useful to you in your life? You know, what's interesting is that many relationships, it begins with needs. It's needs driven. And it's not a bad thing. It's a normal starting point for many relationships that end up being healthy and that, and that thrive. You know, for example, uh, when you first like someone romantically, as much as you think it's about the other person, it's really about you, okay? And how that person makes you feel. How that person meets your needs of being seen, loved, filling in that desire for companionship. It starts out from a place of need. All those butterflies that you feel when you first hold hands on the first date, as you're looking at each other, you talk about nothing and everything's so beautiful and amazing, right? You think it's all about that person. It kind of is, but it's really about how that person is making you feel. You know, I'm 10 years into my marriage, and I don't feel butterflies. I don't know when the last time I felt butterflies. And I know romantic comedies tell you that's a bad thing, but I actually think it's a very good thing, right? Because it's evolved into a place where it's a deeper love for my wife that's not entirely based on meeting my needs, but on the person that I'm in relationship with. And I think that's the same way, and I think in the same way, that is the place that you want to get to when it comes to your relationship with God. You know, God, he will always meet your needs. He will always be someone that you depend on for your needs. We never graduate from that. But spiritual maturity is marked by a relational dynamic with God where we begin to love the person of God himself. Jesus and his presence are what we're after more so than anything else. This is the main point of Christ's reconciling work. He didn't reconcile you purely to give you everything that your heart desires. He wants a relationship. And this is exactly what we see with King David in our passage for today. Okay, so let's spend some time uh, unpacking our passage uh, really quickly. Okay, let's read it again. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, uh, the background to this psalm is difficult to uh, pinpoint with full confidence, but throughout, when you read Psalm 27, you actually get a lot of clues as to what David might have been going through. He talks a lot about evildoers, he's being chased, people want to kill him. And in the midst of that chaos, he says, um, he expresses his one desire, his one thing. He says that it's to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, commentators will say that uh, this doesn't mean that he wants to like literally go into the temple and be there 24-7. I think it could include that. But I think it's more about him 
being present to the presence of God in everyday life, in the midst of his troubles. And it's almost like that the word dwell is more of an awareness of being present to what God, who God is in those moments. And here's what I love about this passage. Uh, if you look at the very next verse in verse 5, uh, look at what it says. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high upon a rock. Okay, pay attention to this. So there's a need that he's asking God to meet. I mean, he has enemies after him. He needs covering, a shelter to protect him. But even in that place of need, look at the posture of his being when he's in the temple. It says the one thing, his one thing isn't necessarily to receive answers to his problems, but it's to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. When he's communing with God, his needs don't hide the very person that he's with, but he's enamored, gazing upon God's beauty, God's glory, and his goodness. There's a sense that what David wants more, even than the provisions of his needs, is the very presence of God. He wants communion. David's pursuit of God is founded on the fact that more than the gift, he wants the giver of those gifts. There is a priority of presence that defines his relationship with God. I'm going to just keep drilling on this, okay? Let me take you to one other favorite story of mine in the book of Exodus. Um, you know, if you guys uh, remember that story, uh, the Exodus story, I mean, you guys have watched Prince of Egypt, so you guys probably know. Um, we find Israel in the wilderness, and as you know, is what's the whole point? They're trying to get it into the promised land. But the problem is, Israel sucks, okay? They're perpetually sinning. They're always complaining. They're always grumbling. They're always making idols. And God is at this point where he's almost like fed up with them. And this is what God says in Exodus 33 to Moses. He says, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Okay, what is God saying? So in response to their sin and rebellion, he's still showing a lot of grace. He's saying, I'm going to make good on my promise. I'm going to send the angel before you. I'm going to drive out all the enemies, and you'll get to have this land that's flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you. My presence will not go with you. And I just love, I'm always challenged by Moses' response. Okay, what does he say in verses 15 and 16? He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Do you see what Moses is saying here? He's saying, if your presence doesn't go with us, we are not going. He's essentially saying, we don't want your gifts, your blessings. We don't want the flowing of milk and honey if the giver doesn't go with us. Do you see where the priority lies? And I love the last part. He says, God, you know, what makes us special is not the land that you're going to give to us. What makes us distinct from every other people is not the blessing, but it's the fact that we have the very presence of God with us. It was never about the promised land. It was always about God's presence. See, Moses understood the very essence of what our relationship with God is supposed to be about. 
is supposed to be relationship. His presence is what we are seeking, treasuring, and are supposed to love. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The sad thing is, many of us would have taken the deal given to Moses. God, as long as you bless me, give me my needs and wants, I'm fine with that. And it's almost like, it almost feels like for many of us, our pursuit of God ends the minute we have no need. When we get to the end of our prayer requests, many of us don't want to pray or enter into God's presence or even feel the need to be in God's presence when our laundry list of prayer requests have been dried out. And so the relationship with God is more about usefulness than about his love. And this is what I meant last week when I said don't settle. Many of you are settling for his blessings and his gifts. You are accepting his gifts, but you are at the expense of the gift giver. You know, God is good. He is your father and he is after you and he wants to pour his gifts to you. But you know, good gifts, you know what the point of gift giving is? It's not necessarily to meet a need or to give something amazing. What's the point, like the ultimate goal of a gift is to point that person back to the giver of those gifts to cultivate a deeper relationship. And that's the whole point of God's blessing. He is pouring these things out on you. Yes, he wants to meet your needs. But more than that, he wants you to see his love for you. And oftentimes, we are so blinded by our needs that we never get to the person. So the question is, do you have a relationship with God that is beyond your own needs, beyond blessings, beyond petitions? What are you really after in your relationship with God? As believers, as his children, we're called to see God and to long for his presence. Now, um, I know I'm like driving this really deep, but uh, just two more reasons if you're not convinced that you should see God's presence, okay? So the first thing is this. If you're reading scripture correctly, the Bible is relentlessly God-centric. You know, as much as the gravitational pull of our sin wants to make everything about us, the Bible is unapologetically God-centered. Everything is for his glory. And not only are you missing out, but you're actually communicating, you're actually hindering the very mission of God when you don't get to the person. When you make blessings and these other things like relationships, finances, your own emotional health, a greater priority than God, that is what we call idolatry. Idolatry is when you make anything more ultimate than God. And when that happens, you actually rob God of his glory. We are communicating to the world that God is very useful, but he's not glorious. He might help, he's very helpful, but he's not beautiful. You know, I love what John Piper says. He says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You know, as people, our supreme purpose in life is to glorify God. And one of the greatest things that we have to do is to push into this type of relationship with God that doesn't make him useful, but makes him beautiful and glorious. The one that satisfies us above all things. Now, secondly, here's another thing why you should pursue after God's presence. Um, it's, it's what your heart is actually after, whether you know it or not. 
uh, I think a couple like sermon series ago, I talked a lot about like how um, a lot of us, you know, our relationship with God, as I said, is very need-driven. Um, and th- we're need-driven because I think our hearts, we have a very deep deficit. All of us, we have insecurities. You have wounds. You have addictions. You have the sense that you're not good enough and all these things. And so those, cell, those, that soul level, those soul level needs drive not just our relationship with God, but all relationships. And when you live from that place, you actually see other people as possible means to fill in that which we are very desperate for. And here's the thing. That soul level des- uh, deficit that we, um, whether you know it or not, is actually a cry for God's presence. The very thing that your heart was supposed to be anchored in. And so, yes, I'm saying like, yeah, have a relationship that's beyond your needs. But that doesn't mean that we just dismiss our needs. It's actually another way of saying that the answer lies in raising your eyes above those things and gazing into the face of God. That is what, where the answer to all these struggles that you have lies. You know, if I look back at my life and if I had to point like one season that was the most impactful uh, was this 40-day period when I was 23 years old. And up to that point, um, I was a very, my soul was essentially starving. Uh, I was looking at everything I could to see, to fill me. Uh, I was very insecure. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, Jesse's older sister opposed us dating uh, because I was not a very healthy person, and she saw that. Uh, I had my party phase. I was in my so-called rebellion phase. But I remember one of the nights after partying, um, I came back home, and it was like those movies, right? They're having fun, and you come back home, and then you just feel really empty and kind of pathetic. Like, what what am I doing with my life? And I don't know how this idea came into my mind, but as I was... Uh, kind of just praying what I could, I felt like God was telling me to spend the next 40 days um, not having any other prayer requests except, God, I want to know the love that drove you to the cross for me. God, I want to know your presence. God specifically told me, don't pray for healing. Don't pray for anything in your life except for the presence of God. And somehow in those 40 days, Man, God's presence came in such a powerful way. He didn't teach me anything new. I didn't learn new theology. All those things are great. But when the very presence of God came, I felt my depression being healed. I felt purpose in life. That was the moment that I received God's calling into ministry. I mean, I was still messed up, but it was the beginning of my journey of becoming whole before the Lord. Church, the answer to your biggest issues is not more stuff. It is the very presence of God. And so, let me leave you with this. Um, Sorry, I actually need to do one more thing. Okay. Um, I think uh, an answer, maybe a question that you have for yourself is like, uh, you know the hard thing about preaching on God's presence? I can't really teach you what it is. It's something that's caught, right? So I'm trying my best in creating space for that. And maybe one of the questions that you have is, isn't God's presence everywhere? Why do I have to ask for the presence of God? Okay, let me just teach you one uh, biblical thing. So in, in scripture, there is the omnipresence of God where God is everywhere. There's that Psalm where David's like, I go here, you're there. I go here, you're, you're there. No matter where I go, God, you're present. But in scripture, there also seems to be what we call the manifest presence of God. So in the Garden of Eden, God is everywhere, 
but he's also walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, right? In the temple, God is everywhere, but he's also in the holy of holies that's different than other places. There's a cloud, of, uh, there's a, there's a cloud and there's also a pillar of fire that comes. Uh, when the disciples in the New Testament go up to the mountain, they see Christ transfigured into all of his glory, right? But he's also omnipresent. And so there's a sense that there is this, yes, he's everywhere, but there's also this manifest presence that we can encounter with the Lord. And when you read revival stories, there's always the same story where people are walking by churches and they can't even go past the door because the presence of God comes and they are on their knees crying out to the Lord. And when I talk about like, I want the presence of God, I don't want the generic type. What I'm asking for is I want that for our church where there is the manifest presence where he actually feels like he's right next to you. There's an encounter with you. And so this year, here's my challenge to you. I want you to make your main prayer the prayer that you pray every day for yourself, whether it's for five minutes or an hour, is God, I want your presence. I want to be aware of your presence. I want to have this hunger for your presence. I want to encounter your face, like the stories that I read about in scripture. Give me intimacy, a real relationship with you. And that by the end of this year, that your one thing, that your one desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. I want to ask you guys to stand.